Why is recorded in front of a live studio audience. I don't know what this says about a relationship, but every time I see you text me, I think Jimmy Carter died. Grandma is going to be one of those people. I mean, maybe not as long as my grandma, but he'll be in a hospice for a smidge. Like not, he's not the immediate hospice die the next day guy. Mm. But it's interesting the way the family phrased the like, he's resting, he's comfortable, all this stuff. They, yeah. they mentioned Rosalind with it too, where I'm like, oh God, is she sick as well? Like, oh. you know what I didn't know until recently, like mm-hmm. this week, that like they met when they were babies. Really? Like his mother was the nurse, I think, who helped deliver Rosalind. Oh, wow. And she, like, he happened to, maybe he was in the nursery school there or something, and she, brought him down to meet this baby and it turned out wow. it was, wow. was kind of cute that's crazy like that I some know. of those the the weird connections with people it's always so fascinating one couple i married i, I don't know if i told you they um they were both from india originally met here and realized they grew up in the same like neighborhood it's crazy it's like all those couples in when harry met sally like mm-hmm. like yeah. we know Permit, and then it's bizarre. It's I know it's kind of cool though. It does sort of make you believe that there has to be some sort of mystical force. Exactly. See, um, right. All helps us be funny. Exactly. <laughs> this is why with your hosts Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. Um, on the plus side, I did see the Carter family tweet out, I guess his grandkids were able to go in and juggle for him. And they really enjoyed that. Oh, so, <laughs> they hey, posted a picture. You know what? Whatever makes you happy. Please. If you're on your deathbed, what would you, you would want jugglers. I don't think I'd want jugglers. Really? Not if I couldn't talk to them and go, why are you juggling? Well, but I, well, I don't know. I feel like I'd be entertained, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd probably take the jugglers. I would well, take you... anything that made me feel at a party. Like I just want. To... I'm having a good time, even if I'm not. Right, but if you're in a hospital bed, I don't know how you turn down jugglers. You know, well, I said I wouldn't turn them down, but I wouldn't like want jugglers. I'd want rock stars to come and like play at my bedside, but. Well, in this scenario, you are old and you've lived a very good life. This isn't Make-A-Wish where it's this is the chance to meet Brett Michaels. But I still would want that. But I'm old and I've lived a really good life. So I deserve to. I've probably partied with some rock stars by then. This trajectory we're on. Right. There are clearly rock stars in my future. I just think that's a weird. You Again, you can't wave off jugglers. You got to. Take what they give you. I wouldn't. I'm not turning down the jugglers. I'm just not as they say jugglers. As they say, you've got to juggle with them's what brung you, you know? And if I want, they either have to be like really good jugglers, like crazy, like circus performer. Yeah, it's not going to be some of those idiots in the park with a stick and a, you know. Right. Or they've got kids who actually don't know how to juggle, but are just adorable because they're trying. I see. Just kids beating each other. I'm an extremist juggling fan. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like well, I, you got to be one end or the other. You can't be like in the middle. Right. Okay. Like, you know, someone I know coming in and juggling for me. Mm, yeah. I'm trying to think what is good entertainment. If you are, what would you want as entertainment at the, that stage in your life? I mean, I think I'd want like, for you, I feel like insult combat. I actually was going to male strippers, but that's <laughs> but like like the movie version, like the Magic Mike style male strippers, I right. think is what I would want. <laughs> that, I would that just, entertainment. I would love to see that mostly to see your family gathered by your side, wiping away tears, going, "This is what you would have wanted." Yes. <laughs> Well, it was so funny. And it's not the same thing. But when my grandma, like, I mean, we kept thinking she was going to die. And then she, but she was just like loved life so much. It was awesome. But, and I think it was whatever. But at one point they moved her to, a, they took her out of hospice and moved her to a rehab facility just temporarily. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. But she um, never wanted to go into a facility. She lived in her own condo her whole life. And she was really mad to go to this place. Well, all of the like, nurses aides that worked there and the physical therapist like they were all these young really hot guys like they were smoking hot and all of a sudden she would have been just fine moving in there permanently and it was a place you could like live people did live there long term mm-hmm. but for the first time in her life she considered it because it was all hot young men like picking her up into her wheelchair and Helping her down to PT and working back. out that knot on her in her shoulder. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. A totally different story. Well, and that way you sort of hope. Yeah, you 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 go doing what you love. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Huh. This is this is what I feel makes yeah. sense. I need to. I need to make up my. Uh, I feel like there should be a will. Someone needs to know my plans. I know, right? Obviously, I want my ashes pushed off the side of a, a countertop by a cat, but I don't know prior to passing what I want. Right. What are those last, your advanced directive? Exactly. <laughs> we should probably document these on more than, it, well, I mean, yeah. at least we have a recording and they can this prove saying that these are the things we want. And we're clearly not under duress. Yeah, well, we're different kind of duress. Um, But yeah, that would be. Yeah, I'm not sure yet what I want. I I don't love the take all the money and go have a party because like. It's still about me just a little bit. Right. Um, You don't want to be a total bummer, but you want a little bit where someone's like sad that you're not you're not there. Well, right. Like, I want the party to be while I'm alive. Like, even if I can't, like, it'd be really weird. But even if I can't fully enjoy it, mm. put me on my chaise, right? Dance around me, and yes, have hot guys dancing around you while you're mm-hmm. in a wheelchair, just staring off to middle distance. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna lay in my tantra chair. <laughs> <laughs> just wait, wait. What you're saying? What you're saying? Make them wrestle. What is that? Yes. No, no. <laughs> exactly. And then I want some sort of a, you know, I can do a whole Roman thumbs up, thumbs down. Mm. I'm not going to have them killed or anything, but. Right. 
Uh, you want to be carried in on some sort of skiff or litter? Of course. Yeah. I mean, everything yeah. I'm going to do is going to be like that. It's all going to be Cleopatra. Once we make it big time, all my entrances are going to either be Bianca Jagger style or Cleopatra. It's going to be one or the other. Right. And never on time is the vibe I'm getting. I know, but that's not me because I actually mm. do time. Interesting. I don't like to be late. It stresses me out. Mm. So I might have to do that but promptly because also if i'm late to my own party i miss part of the party this is why i Mm. hate surprise parties i think surprise parties are the worst thing you can do for someone because it's look at all this fun we were having before you showed up right like all the Mm. food's picked over the booze is half gone you don't get to pick what you're wearing so you Mm. don't even know what's looking like and so like and everyone's been standing around bored waiting for you. So they're really drunk and full. So by the time you get there, they're like, oh, yeah, you're here. We'll, we'll just carry on as we were. Mm-hmm. I think you need new friends, not hating surprise parties. Well, no, no one's ever thrown me a surprise party. Mm-hmm. I've just been on the other side of surprise parties. And you're the one drinking home. all the booze and eating all the herbs. Yes. I see. That's- okay. I'm comedian David Race in Los Angeles. I host a celebrity-filled paranormal talk show like no other. Monstrosity has great guests answering weird questions. You won't believe the combo of celebrities and paranormal experts who've been on this show. I guarantee you'll like Monstrosity, or you get your time back. Go to monstrositypodcast.com right now and take a look. But it's weird. I think it's a weird concept. It is. It's not. Yeah. Like, I think it's different if you take the person and like sort of bait and switch where you're going. So they're already knowing that they're going to be doing something of mm. note. And they're dressed that the game up is afoot in everybody one way or another. Right. But even then, what if I'm in the mood to just go out with like my man? I don't want a million people there. Like, then right. it's like, oh, wow, this is great. Why are you people here? You just want to go home and have pizza rolls. And you're like, why do right? I have to do this? Yes. What Surprise. Just- Quick question. Do we still get pizza rolls? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Every party I ever have has pizza rolls. <laughs> I'm finding in the museum we get occasionally a child will come in who who loves say doctor who or loves sci-fi and it's just refreshing that they have this they get they get it and mm-hmm. can watch effectively like a long form film you know um yeah when i was when i was their age i was i used to basically watch get the newspapers and the you know the local newspaper and be looking for a late night film you know, the sort of film that was in one of my movie books because, you know, there was no VHS, no nothing like that. And if something came on at night, it'd stay up late at night, you know, and like The Outer Limits used to be on at one in the morning over here in the UK. And how can that go wrong? Well, one o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I'd, yeah, I'd stay up, you know, to watch that. And I'd be like, just my eyes would be going, you know, but I just, 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 just special, you know. And I think now it's like, if it's not instant, it's really, wow. It's a definite change. I've noticed that. So my massive, the main people who come in here, I would say are 40s to 60s, who are the ones who absolutely 
it's that generational thing. We we watch the same things. We there wasn't streaming, so we all watched the same. Especially in the UK, there wasn't many channels, so you had right. two or three channels. So you watched the same thing. So when V, remember V came on in 1981 or whatever it was, it was like whoa! Everyone in the playground was V V bloody hell. So you put right. something in here, um, and everybody like the day of the Triffids was a big thing, and I've got to, I've just restored a, a Triffid from that. The producer of the show visited the museum and donated the Triffid, which is fantastic. And I've restored the Triffid. Um, and it's just people come in and they go, oh, God, the Triffids, you know. Whereas kids come in and it's hard to find any two children that have watched the same thing. Yeah, um, definitely. And that's the difference. But you get some who come in who generally probably whose parents have browbeaten them. You will watch this. It's like me with Flash Gordon. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a Flash Gordon helmet in here from 1940. And... When Star Wars came out in the 70s, my dad in the war had watched Flash Gordon at the local cinema when they were being bombed on the coast in the UK here. And when they, you know, the BBC were desperate to put some science fiction on when Star Wars came out. So mid-70s, you know, 77, whatever it was, you know, every Saturday, you know, holiday mornings, Flash Gordon was put on because it cost them very little. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter that it was all hokey. It was wonderful, you know. So I've got this, you know, however much, how you know, 40-year-old sci-fi I was watching. Um, and so I now have that. I now have that love that my dad had for it, you know. Um, so how did you make that jump from aficionado and lover of the genre and hmm. all the different elements of it to collector? Oh, blimey! Because uh, obviously this has got to be a different time because these pieces yeah. now are yeah. astronomical. Yeah, they are astronomical. I started. I'm not astronomically wealthy. Um, I am an artist and I'm passionate about what I do. I've just been diagnosed with ADHD, which is why I realized it's sort of like giving me this deep focus, which I've always wondered. I haven't wondered, I've just taken for granted. But um, when I got into things, it's that special interest, you know, the autistic special interest. I had a special interest in sci-fi. And then in bands like Rush and Yes, you know, where you could sort of mm-hmm. really deeply get into something, you know. Um, and I think it was, it started with action figures, really, you know, it was that initial was mega figures and that, that, that chance you could have of those stories you loved, you could have them, you know, you, mm-hmm. could, you could have these little galleries, even though they were really awful figures. I mean, I love them, but awful, really. Right. You know, I mean, God bless them. And then the Star Wars figures, of course, I was the right age. So I was seven when they came out and they were like mind expanding. Um, and so I think I got into that, I've got, I'm part librarian, you know, I've got this, this archival side to my nature and I loved the magazines and I would cut up magazines and make my own film magazines and draw my own comics. Um, and, and then I went to see the Doctor Who exhibition. Um, I mean, I don't know if you want to save this for the show or is this being recorded now? That's, anyway. I'm recording it, I figure oh, we'll take what basically, we need. Basically, 1975, okay, I went to see, there was a, a seaside resort called Blackpool in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, it was made for Victorians, you know, to go on the holidays. The trains came out there and they went in the mass. They just sat in the, s- the sun, you know, and there was like a promenade and everything. Classic seaside, Victorian seaside. Well, by the oh. 70s, the um, BBC had opened the Doctor Who exhibition there. Now, this was quite unusual because you had things from the show, literally that had maybe been on screen a month ago, were now in this museum exhibition mm-hmm. and you were like on a bright summer's day you would then go on the promenade you'd go downstairs radiophonic sound 
and coloured lights and you were swamped in atmosphere. It was absolutely, I mean, for a child, it was just ridiculous. And there were the things you'd seen on the telly and there was no books, there was no magazines, there was nothing. So it was all in your mind. Um, and I, I can only liken it to Santa Claus when you're five, you know, sort of the reality fiction. Just right. bl- bloody wonderful, really, you know, heady stuff. Um, and I remember that day I went twice and uh, it was on for many years, but my dad only took me twice. And um, I just want to do something like that. It was that sort of, these are the real things. These are the things they are actually, I've just been, you know, Doctor Who, you see, was the thing that got to me and a lot of people, my generation, I guess, and that you, you had to come in on Friday afternoon, sports was on, which I hated, waited for that to finish. Doctor Who. And everybody was, you know, a few of us, we just loved it. We get our Marvel comics from the newsagent, devour those. Um, and then it was Doctor Who, your one-stop bit of science fiction. And if you're lucky, you'd get a B-movie on in, the, in midnight, you know, mm-hmm. some, sometime, you know, and it was just precious. And I think that's probably, and I think that desire to sort of relive all that, that memory and... Um, then the chance to get real bits from it came up in the 90s. I was poverty stricken. I had no, I came from a very poor background. So there was, I didn't, never thought I'd ever own anything from it. Um, by this point, though, I was sculpting and making my own things and um, started teaching. And as I sort of got to my 30s, I had a salary. So then I, then I could start to buy a few bits and bobs. And I thought, it was just, I remember the first thing, I sold a motorcycle which I used to get to work on to buy a dress from Doctor Who because it was an original dress. So it's like I sold the ultimate symbol of masculinity to buy a dress. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Just, but still got it. It's in the museum. And it was a bit of magic for me. Um, and it progressed. It progressed. Now, nowadays, in the last 10 years, dealers came into the scene, the prop market, prop dealer market. And they the prices went through the roof. At yeah. one time, it was the BBC auctioned huge swathes of wardrobe off. And fans like myself and collectors, we'd, we'd be able to swap them between each other, you know. And they were sold at what I class as sensible prices, you know, prices that you could afford on a, on a, without being, you know, the CEO of a major company or something. You know, if you were a teacher, you could afford one or two of them. I, mean, I got my first, my Cyberman, before the new series came back, when Doctor Who was in the doldrums. And I, I paid about £2,000 for it, but which was a lot of money, but I paid for it over two years to get it, you know. Yeah. But now that would be worth... I couldn't afford it. I can't do it. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's interesting. I wonder how much of sort of our generation's love of this stuff comes from the fact that it wasn't instantly available, that you could not just press a button. You had to live with the idea of what would this be? What this, what's this poster promising us? Yes, totally. I think, and I think, you know, something you just hit the nail on the head. The movie poster was a powerful thing. There was the movie poster and also the genre magazines. You'd get black, like in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. Doctor Who wasn't available. To, it never was repeated for various reasons. The BBC couldn't repeat it. You had to pay everybody again. There was a royal charter from the Queen that said, basically, the BBC, you're not paying for repeats. The, the public are paying for new content. So you're not bloody well repeating things. You're making new content. So it was only when the VHS came in the late 80s, you could see these things again. So you made do with black and white photos. And of course, a lot of these photos made things look amazing. Right. <laughs> movie posters made things look amazing. You know, I'm trying to think of a good example. Right. Escape from New York. New I was going to say Drew Struzan. Yeah. Was a master Escape of New- yeah. Escape from New York, where the Statue of Liberty's head and Kurt Russell and Donald Pleasance running down the street. That never happens in the film, does it? 
But what <laughs> poster, I remember seeing that poster and thinking, that is a film, film to see. I want to see that. And I think um, I always say the curse of the photo montage now. You know, everything's just like heads, photoshopped in. Mm-hmm. And all those beautiful artworks and posters, they did. There was a, there was a, it was a promised land. And I think you, movie props were just unheard of. I mean, growing up, I, I unheard of to have something from Doctor Who, from anything. It was like the, the magic veil, you know, it was like going through a different dimension. Um, nowadays, now I'm, I find myself now with the museum. I can't, you know, there's big prices go for things. I've got some lovely pieces. People donate things because of the museum. You get people who I've had a lovely chap who's now a bit older and he worked in in um, on many films, you'll know donated his collection because he's got all he's gone he's, he's gone into sheltered housing and he could have sold it but he said no i want people to see it and i am incredibly grateful because it means i've got pieces from blade runner star wars mm. aliens which i've never ever have been able to afford because the, there's a dealer auction culture and it's it's tough to integrate when you're not on that sort of money um i've had the producer sorry director of doctor who one of my favorite directors graham harper he's donated the lead cyberman head he came to visit the museum wow. look what i was doing and donated it i mean i couldn't afford that right and I, I think he knew that and i think he just thought what i'm doing actually for me they shouldn't be in collector's rooms are great but they're for a person for me this is open all year round i mean i've only had two people in today it's winter it's quiet but I'm here. I write stuff. I do other things. I draw, do all sorts of things. But I'm here. If you want to come and visit the stuff, it's open all year round. Like the BBC exhibition was, I knew at a weekend I could visit these really important, you know, nostalgic. I call it shared culture, you know, because we mm-hmm. it's shared cultural history. It's more, more interesting to me. I went to um, the Louvre, I went to Paris and saw various famous artists. Frank, I'm sorry, you know, Van Gogh, my wife loves Van Gogh. I, I just went. To me, I'd rather see an axon from Doctor Who or, uh, you know, a bit of uh, one of Blade, you know, a newspaper from Blade Runner. It's far more interesting to me personally, because these are things that resonate with me and my life. And I think that's what little music, but it's always like the art establishment kind of looks down on these, on pop culture. True. Pop. Right. I don't mean fine art pop culture. I don't mean Andy Warhol. I mean, sort of, you know, and I think there's a look down. There's always been this stuffy nose. Look at it. Mm-hmm. And yet I think for most people, this stuff means a lot to them. It's for me, it's the time when my parents were still alive, where we sat and watched television together, where we chatted about films and it brings all that back as well. You know what I'm it's it's a very yeah. special it, time. It, it's got that personal connection as well as a connection to a greater yeah. thing that brings people together. Yeah. Have you always uh, obviously, you know, you get your your first dress and that's not one dress does not a museum make. No, as <laughs> right as much as one would wish. As you're kind of building this collection, did you always have in the back of your mind this idea of like, I want to share this with people. I want to have my enthusiasm, my love yeah. of this stuff I actually, get out there. I actually did. And I, I think I had a heartbreaking moment when I hit 40. I'm 53 very soon. When I hit 40, I realized I was, I had my, my collection, which was quite nice, but mm-hmm. there was still a very large Doctor Who exhibition open in the UK at that time. And I went down to see it in Wales and I came back and I thought, my collection's nice, but my God, it's nothing. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's, but, it's but a flea on the back of the dog, you know? And, and it was also, I thought, um, I always thought, right. If I got the chance to do this, I could make a damn good job of it because I would research things in a way that 
maybe the people who work at the BBC, they're just employees, you know, this week's job, make a music, you know, display this, you know, in all the, with all the best will in the world. And, and the exhibitions I'd go to, you'd see like a, a display and it would have Jadoon. And they would have a picture of the Jadoon standing next to a Jadoon. It's like, well, I get it. It's a Jadoon. I already know it's a bloody Jadoon. Um, but I want more about that. I want the history of it. Where's it come from? Was it? So I thought I knew I would give that to it. I knew I would do that side of the, the thing. Um, but um, when I hit 40, basically, I just thought, I don't own my own house yet. How mm-hmm. on earth am I going to? There's no way. I thought, really? And I even got to the point when I was about 45 where I was going to sell the whole lot because I thought, right, this is just, I've seen it. They've all become objects. I've seen them. And unless I can do something with them, to me, it's no different to having, I don't know, a collection of pots, a collection of this, as much as, as wonderful as they were. Mm-hmm. I started, you know, we had children a bit later on and I thought, I've got, I can't justify this. Um, and literally as I was about to sell it, stuff was on eBay. Um, wow. We put an offer in on this house. My wife got it. And this was a wreck. It's a four-story Georgian, 300-year-old Georgian stone townhouse. I would have been sitting in water seven years ago. You would have been, I'd have been in waders. Um, there would have been no ceiling. Would have been saying hello to my wife upstairs. And it would have been, and my dog would have been woofing down at us because there was just a wreck. And I'd done a bit of building when I was in my early 20s. And I thought, oh, I can, this is it. And it's in a marketplace. So you can open a business there. You know, see, that's the thing. You can't just have a property. It's got to be somewhere you can actually legally bloody open. Right. Yeah. There's, 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 when you think about these things, people sometimes say, I'm going to make a museum. And I think, go for it, buddy. Um, because it's it's not it's not straightforward. You know, you've got to um, there's a lot to it. Hey, bar and girl fans, it's Jim with Madhouse Bar Talk where me and my co-hosts sit around and talk about the things going on around Madhouse Bar and Grill in Elyria, Ohio. The whole conversation is unscripted, uncensored, and unedited. Anywhere where you stream podcasts, just remember, Madhouse Bar Talks, baby! As in, yeah, especially if you're trying to live above the shop, as yeah. it were. Yeah, yeah. So... How has, I mean, from, from watching the, the thing on Netflix, which if folks haven't seen it is so worth checking out because again, I, I think just in the 15, 20 minutes we've been talking and mm. in this thing, the passion comes through, oh. which is always the thing that like you hope, you know, mm. and I think it's gotta be one of the reasons people are are donating their collections to the museums because they know it's going to someone who will be, as ecstatic as they are with these pieces. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, and it's so interesting to see the variety of stuff you've got. You know, we've talked mostly about the Dr. Stu who stuff, but you have an APED from planet comma of the. Um, right. What I've got, I'm going to be clear here. Yes. The APED, I have, um, I've got a, compl- a complete costume from beneath the planet of the apes. Right. I then have, I've got a prosthetic from the original film, which is not actually out on display yet. I then got a complete Tim Burton with head chimp suit. Tim Burton will not say too much. Yeah, we'll just acknowledge it's there. We'll just say beautiful design. Planet of the Apes, just for anybody who's interested in this, I think should never, ever, ever have had a sequel. They should have stopped when Charlton Heston stood on that beach 
and just walked away because it was the probably the greatest, one of the great movie endings of all time. Anyway, I digress and I'll shut up. But what I do, the head itself was made by a former student of mine. Um, so the actual costumes, basically, I was going to sculpt it myself. I didn't know I was going to end up with a prosthetic later on, but a, a girl called Dolly Hope, who I'd taught in my class when she was this big, has gone into prosthetics and she needed a final project for a degree. And I was going to sculpt it. And um, I, she said, what, what, have you got any? And, I, and eventually I said, you've seen Planet of the Apes prosthetics. Somebody stood you. No. And I went, what? You're studying bloody prosthetic design and you ain't seen that. I moderate my language here very carefully. Right. For, for say, go and see bloody Planet of the Apes. Anyway, she saw it. She went, what? And I went, yes, what? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So she said, can I do, I went, yes, do the ape head for me, please. So basically Dolly did it in, and she followed the, the ways that they did the original, but obviously cast it in silicon as opposed to rubber and punched all the hair through and everything. So that was made by Dolly. And it was lovely because it's really special because it was made by a former pupil who was, remembers my art class when she was like 10, 11. Yeah. And, um, it was lovely. But then I ended up with the, the Burton one. The Burton one's a great suit. It's just the, the, the film. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And, um, but then uh, I've ended up with a very old prosthetic, which is going to go out very soon. Um, and you wouldn't actually be able to put it on. Like most of these things, they're the rubber pieces. You cannot actually put them on. You can't. You don't want to touch them. You want to. You want to moisturize them, seal the moisture in, and seal it and seal it and seal it, and then never ever touch it again. You know that's part of what you have to do. Sorry, well, have, that, have I answered your question there? I'm not sure. Yeah, you're in the vicinity. Yeah. Um, but like all of, and that's the other thing too. So many of these things are not made to last for, you know, they have to hold up on screen for one day of shooting, yeah. maybe a week. If you're mm. really, really lucky, they're not made for forever. No. It, there's so this, you know, preserving this collection is the, the preservation of it just to show it to people, but then there's the preservation to keep this thing together. And you often see how things degrade over time. Yeah. What kind of, and especially, you know, you said a basement that is had some water in it. You're dealing with Ooh, a, yeah. a different element that would make yeah. my heart stop every time I turn that light on to no. go down the stairs. Uh, the cellars, pr- sorry. No, how do you how do you preserve this stuff to make sure people can see it and it can well, be? Well, the, the cellar is actually a blessing. Okay, it mm. took me two years from 2015 to 2017 to get rid of all the water. When I say that. You think there's it's half underground, half ground level. So you come in at ground level, but then it goes underground. You would think the water would be from one, you know, a broken pipe here, a broken pipe there. No, no, no. Seven places. It, over about probably a century, water had seeped in. So you found one place. And eventually we got everywhere. We'd gone around the back of the house, the front of the house, everywhere. And we knew we had to get rid of that water. There was no way we could, you know, do this without, without water coming in. Finally, we thought we'd done it. Water the next morning was coming in. I was like, what the? Where's this water coming from? And it turned out to be the uh, my washing machine, which was a year old, just, just to add insult to injury. It was dripping a tiny bit out of the pipe, straight down through the back wall. So once that was done, that was that. It was Now, that doesn't mean it's not damp. But the beauty of it is, I have, I have three dehumidifiers running at all time. It's cool because it was a, a cellar and it was used for storage, which is absolutely perfect for storing because it stays constant temperature. It's mm. pretty constant, you know? I mean, they, this, we've had snow here. Uh, to be honest, it, it just goes in a height. It, it's pretty good. And the summer is where it was really hot this year for us here. Um, it was brilliant. 
Cool. So the expansion and contraction. Now, you compare that to the BBC's giant exhibition that had been there um, called the Doctor Experience in Cardiff. It was a huge aircraft hangar. And it was there for about 2011 to 2017. A lot of the props deteriorated in there because being a metal hanger, the temperature, nighttime freezing, summertime boiling, and a lot of the stuff. I spoke to a chap, Mike Tucker, who visited, who ran it, helped run it, worked on Doctor Who. He visited the museum recently, lovely to speak to him. And he said, no, he said they have loads of problems in there because, au contraire, it right. wasn't a state-of-the-art building at all. It was huge so so in a way this the actual cellar is a bonus this stone is just bloody great absolutely fantastic and then in terms of preservation the key thing is um you, you when you've got old rubber some of these rubbers like from the 70s you know you you really have to stop touching it and handling it and moving it so the key thing is you either put it on a mannequin or fill it with foam if you can it's great fill up expandable foam if you can without distorting it and you fill it with resin, you use glycerin, you soak it, so you get it all soaked up, and then you seal it in, because it's what happens with foam rubber particularly, is once it dries, it just literally turns to dust. It's great fun, not. <laughs> and um, you just, and you've got to just, you know, I've got, a, I've got a head here. I don't know if you can see through there. You might just be able to see. Uh, yeah. I don't know if yep. you can see. Yeah, there's yeah. a head there. That's one of my, uh, Kevin Bacon's heads from Hollow Man. Okay. And it's quite shriveled. It is, yeah. Yeah, that's quite shriveled. Um, but what I've done is I've that's sealed. So now that's that'll just sit there. It's all there, but it's cracked. But for 20 years, that was just allowed. Probably it was in the States. So it was probably allowed to just shrivel, contract, shrivel, contract, shrivel, contract. But it's okay. Next to it is a Morlock from 1960. That was bits of uh, pasta. All I can say was like a plate of pasta bits. And I had to just, it was like a jigsaw. quite a lot of re-sculpting by myself but I'm always honest about that it's a last resort I sculpt thankfully I can sculpt but it's a lot it's a last resort you only do that um when you have to and there are bits in here which I've had to do that Mm but um you've got to weigh up are you um there's a bit there's a Davros from Doctor Who bits of his face are left so what I managed to do is get a fiberglass cast of the original from the original mold and then I've pieced the surviving pieces around it moisturized them sealed them so you can see what's left and the the actual cast the gray cast shows the rest of the form that's a nice way of showing what's left so it's it's sometimes it's you know you, you'll try and repair it and make it look like it was but I'll only do that if you, you're looking at three quarters needs to be there I would say mm-hmm. to do that because otherwise you're ending up sculpting a mask yourself and people aren't, are looking at your sculpting with bits in. Yeah. That's Do you know what I mean? And sometimes if I'm sculpting a bit, I won't paint it. I'll leave it unpainted so you can see the original pieces. And right. there's the bit I've stuck in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. acknowledging that there has been preservation done yeah. to it. And here yeah. are the spots. Yeah, it makes complete yeah. sense. How often are you getting new pieces in? I mean, you said you've got stuff that you're working on to get out. Yeah. How 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 fast am I doing them all? Or just how often are you getting stuff in where people are contacting you saying, hey, I've got this thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm getting probably now several pieces a year. It's difficult to say. Last year I had an amazing year mm-hmm. because I had an actress called Sophie Aldred who plays Ace in Doctor Who. She's visited us a few times. She's become a good friend of ours now. Lovely, lovely woman and great um, ambassador for, for Doctor Who, but just mm-hmm. a lovely person. She's just got time for everybody. She's donated bits of a costume that she kept. You know, I mean, I, I didn't ask. She just thought these need to go in here and they're lovely. And what I'll do with those is I'll put the pieces around 
next to the most appropriate story they're from. Um, so I get pieces like that. Um, in terms of, it's difficult to quantify. Last year I had a good year, probably about six or seven pieces. Um, I've just Are you still one. purchasing stuff? Less so now because of space. Yeah, right. I mean, as well, I quit teaching. So now I'm very much, um, I work two days a week with people with autism. I do art, sort of like a kind of like education, occupational therapy. I do two days of that. And then I'm in the museum and then I have a Patreon um, which is brilliant. And I do magazines for Patreon, which I should have an example. Sure. And I do these really quality magazines with people who subscribe. And it's a deep dive into one object. So I'll take one prop and I'll go into this film it was in, where it was, what happened to it afterwards. You know, it's sort of like a, a different way of building a history of sci-fi. So it's like, um, you know, I've, I've read the history. I love sci-fi movies. I mean, I, I grew up with it in Doctor Who. So I, I'm writing like an alternative guide, but through an object which I just right. think is a different way of coming at it. You know, who yeah, made I, you know, it's always about actors, actors and directors, you know, and sometimes I just think there's a lot of other people put a lot of work in. It's nice to just go at it from a different viewpoint. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you just have props or do you go into call sheets, script pages, oh, I'll go designs? Anything, anything, anything you want. With, Doc, with, right, with Doctor Who, I mean, well, I don't know if you can see, on the wall behind me here, these are animation cells from the 90s. These are from yep. Fantastic Four and X-Men. Um, okay. So I've got some animation. I mean, I love drawing and love animation. I've taught animation, so I, I like all that sort of thing. But yeah, I've got copy. Yeah, script page. I mean, the original idea of the museum was to try... There was about 140-odd original Doctor Who stories. I'm not a big fan, particularly of the new show, because they changed too many parameters for me as an old fart. That it was just a bit, I, I knew what I liked. Doctor Who to me was Sherlock Holmes, Quatermass, and a bit of H.G. Uh, Wells. That that was that was Doctor Who. They've changed him into more of a, it's like a fashion model at the minute. It's not quite my field. Right. It's, it's just a different audience. It's not, it's not, it's not written with me in mind. Right. It's absolutely, absolutely fine. It's a good show. It's just not quite to my taste. But, um, so that made it easier because what I thought is right. The BBC, they deal with the new show. Now that's their baby. I will try and do something for the old old people and uh, we'll try and do something. Um, so I wanted to get, what well, my aim is to get an object from every story. Now, I'll never do it because these things just don't exist. But I've got about, oh gosh, I'm getting up to 80 stories, I think, represented with an object. Now, that could be a script page um, or it could be a cufflink or it could be a monster or it could be a, book, a page of published book art that was part of the original range. It's basically things that uh, represent the show that are published or screen made. You know, largely I prefer the screen made stuff, but I've also, I, I've got an artist, Andrew Scaletta and Colin Howard, two big Doctor Who artists. I've managed to get original pieces from them and they are, you know, in the museum too. And I think it just adds a variety to what, what people see. And it's nice to see good, good hand-painted art in an age of digital art i, it, I love hand-painted it, yeah. it goes back to movie posters doesn't it it's nice to see hand-painted artwork you know well, when, it, it seems all the things there there is that hand yeah. element to it the costumes the idea that this actor wore this this was on yeah. set that day that they shot this thing like the, there's a, a very tactile sensation it seems yeah. to everything you've got there which is certainly yeah. lost when you get digital with all of that yeah yeah it's fascinating i think there's that idea of like what would the eight-year-old you think of what you've done with your life you know when you're getting incredibly metaphysical and and what does this all mean 
I would assume the eight-year-old you would be completely ecstatic that this place exists and that you get to sit there every day. Yeah, I think blown away. I mean, I I was uh, an only child, so I lived very much, and now realize I was ADHD, so I was very much in the deep thought processes that follow that. Mm-hmm. I used to go to school, and we had a couple of us at that time at school, you know, as well. Um, you know, Marvel comics, sci-fi films. It was very nerdy stuff. It was, you know, there was I wasn't on the I wasn't into football, which was still is this sort of male bastion of what a bloke is. You're a bloke if you're into footy. Well, I'm not into football. My dad actually managed a football team. I had absolutely <laughs> bugger all interest. I'm not kidding. I used to go to the football match on a Saturday with my dad and take my Star Wars figures, and he must have been weeping because I'd be sitting <laughs> at the side playing with Han Solo, you know. And at the end of the day, it's. I think I, I um, it would be amazing. That would be one of the most amazing things to do would be to take that little lad and, take him around the museum there's actually a monster in here which is on loan from the guy from mike tucker from there who, who worked on doctor and it's a zygon called broton which is their most incredible costume it's stunning from 1975 it was in blackpool in 1975 and i remember it wow. as a child i remember going and took it was up here and there was somebody in it and i was terrified of it. it's all full of suckers incredible costume for the time and i wouldn't shake its hand i remember and, and my daughter who's grown up totally seeing all this all the time right when she saw broton in the museum the zygon even she went i don't like that one and i nah 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 i get it especially when you're low down here i mean to me it is just a big rubber costume because i've hauled him you know up from london and i've had him in some awkward angles getting through doors and you've things. had times with each other i get it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah The Museum of Classic Sci-Fi in Allendale, England, is currently open Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Friday. For hours and much more information, check out their website, museumofclassicsci-fi.com. Why the Podcast is produced by the Professional Production Company. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because we're shallow and need constant validation. For more information, you can check out our website, whythepodcast.com. And like everyone else, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was recorded and produced by Heidi Hedquist and myself from our world headquarters, located on the second floor of the professional office building, centrally located downtown. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sauvé and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This one's for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?